0: Well, hey, if you had told us 18 months ago that we would still be meeting like this, we probably would have all laughed or cried and said, no, that can't possibly be uh, what our future holds. But here we are, and uh, we're still encouraged that we can meet together like this. Uh, as you know, we have started meeting together in person, and many are, have been able to come back, and it's been great to see them. Uh, But we also know that we're connecting with people uh, in some smaller communities uh, across the province where your churches haven't begun meeting together. Of course, those of you over at Mission and those of you at Central Abbey want to say a big hello to you. Just give you a warning a little bit later in the sermon. I'm going to ask you to uh, speak out loud with me, uh, the Apostles' Creed. And so, literally, they're in your services at Mission and Central Abbey. I want you to join me in that, so that's your warning up front. But anyway, it has been good for us to have this format, and we want to just talk to you, those watching at home, knowing that uh, some of you aren't yet able to get back to our public services. We totally understand that, totally get that. And so, for the foreseeable future, uh, this is going to be our way to connect. And we would love to connect with you personally. So if you have any pastoral needs that you would like to connect with a pastoral staff member about, I encourage you to email us. And we would love to be in contact with you. So with all that said, uh, we are going to jump in. Uh, If you've been listening, you know that we are in a summer series called Seconds. And we finished off Second Timothy last weekend. And now we're opening Second Thessalonians. So you'll need to have your Bibles. Uh, We're going to go verse by verse through chapter 1. And we are looking at really what is the opening comments. Uh, In fact, in some ways, it would be really easy to just breeze through chapter 1 and sort of jump into the meat of the uh, the book that starts in chapter 2, because uh, really chapter 1 is uh, Paul's classic style of just a greeting and a thanksgiving and a prayer. Uh, the main focus of these two letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, is on the final judgment and the return of Christ. Paul opened up that topic in the first book, so in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians he says, we don't want you to be unaware or uninformed about people who have fallen asleep, those who have died. What happens to them as we wait for the return of Christ? Uh, And then he, he talks about the second coming as like a thief in the night, and that we don't have all the answers. We've got some questions, we've got some theories, there are scriptures that point forward, but we don't have all the answers but we're not unaware. We're not left completely off guard. We are children of the light or children of the day. And so we keep alert and we keep watching and looking for the signs of the times. And really you could jump from that letter right into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where it picks up that same theme now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's sort of the meat and potatoes of these two books. But There is an awful lot going on in chapter 1, and I think it's a compelling call to each one of us. It's implied in the text and in the greater context that it's set in. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Uh, I want to frame it to you in this way with uh, a few questions. How are you at swimming against the current, swimming upstream? How do you do under pressure when the heat gets turned up? Are you prepared to be part of the resistance, uh, to swim upstream, if you will? Specifically, are you willing to take some flack for how your life impacts the world around you? Because what I'm going to try to convince you of in this next little bit is this basic idea that if you truly embrace the teachings of Jesus, if you're embracing a worldview, it is uh, an upside down worldview in the minds of many people perhaps the majority of people around us. We're going against the grain. That if you decide to live your life and your faith out publicly, not just to have a secret, hidden opinion about the things of God, but you you actually want your life to be transformed and to change the way you live your life, you might get labeled a disturber. So the question is, are you willing? Are you interested in learning to swim upstream? So before we get wet, let's look at the text. Uh, You've got your Bibles with you, I trust. And we're gonna just walk through this passage literally verse by verse. Now there could be a very simple outline. Paul's typical approach in his letters is simply this, greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer. That's how he opens almost every letter he writes. A greeting, a word of thanksgiving, and then a word of prayer. In this context, he inserts a word of comfort and consolation into the middle of that. So he sort of upsets his typical outline, if you will. But 2 Thessalonians 1 starts this way simply. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And we're just gonna put a period there. What do we know about these people, the Thessalonians? So we've gotta go back to the book of Acts. Acts is the journal of early church history, Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, and the second half, predominantly, the work and the ministry of the apostle Paul, tracing his three missionary journeys that he makes throughout Asia and over into Greece and Italy. Paul's first encounter with the Thessalonians is on his second missionary journey. That's Acts 15 to Acts 18. So in the middle of that chunk, Acts 17, we see this. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. There's three key themes that come up in Paul's teaching when he lands in Thessalonica. The first is this. According to the scriptures, now keep it in your mind. These are the Old Testament scriptures. According to the scriptures, the Christ would suffer and would rise from the dead. Now that was a revolutionary thought for Jewish listeners in the synagogue. They couldn't make sense of this idea that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one was going to rule and reign was their thought. To suffer and to die was not on their on their minds at all. Secondly, that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the one called the Christ. Not only would the Christ suffer, but now we identify him with a specific person, Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally, and maybe the most radical, was his message that Jesus is the king. So if you drop to Acts 17, verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King, Jesus. So that's the message that got the Thessalonian Christians into trouble. Uh, The Jews are upset. This strange teaching that the Christ would suffer, uh, even more so that we could identify Him as that Nazarene. And finally, this message was politically incorrect. It was a disturbing of the peace type of a message, if you will. They had the audacity to claim that Jesus Christ was the King over and above Caesar. Now, we'll come back to that at the end of our message. But if you're willing to declare Jesus Christ as King, you need to be prepared for a battle because it's not a welcome message. So the book opens with the standard greeting, grace and peace to you, and then Paul moves on into his thanksgiving and his prayer. So you've got your Bibles, look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. When we remember you, Paul says, we thank God for three things, your faith, your love, and your endurance. They come to mind immediately. Your faith, your love, your endurance. It's worth noting that they they are almost identical words to how Paul started his first letter to the Thessalonians. So if you flip back a few pages, you'll see this, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse two and three. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and here it is, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfast hope. And then a few verses later in verse 9 and 10, he expands on those three the- three themes. Verse 9 and 10 of First Thessalonians 1. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So did you see it there? Did you connect the dots uh, from verses 2 and 3 down to verses 9 and 10? We thank God for your work of faith. What was that work of faith? Well, you received the gospel, you heard it, you believed it, and you acted on it. Specifically, you turned to God from idols. Secondly, we thank God for your labor of love. It wasn't just head knowledge, but it was taking knowledge, uh, taking action rather. It was head, heart, and hands all engaged. You turned from idols and instead you ran headlong into serving the living and true God. And then finally, we thank God for your steadfast hope, that you're doing all of this with an eye on the coming kingdom of God, that you're waiting for the Son from heaven who will deliver us. So 1 Thessalonians, summarize it this way, I thank God for your work of faith, you turned from idols, your labor of love, you served the living God, and your steadfast hope, your patient endurance and waiting. So we get the exact same trio here in 2 Thessalonians 1. With the addition of some qualifiers, your faith is growing abundantly. So this faith that turned you away from idols is continuing to grow. And literally the phrase in the Greek is hypergrowth. It's on steroids. Your faith is really taking off. Your love for each other just keeps getting stronger and stronger. People are watching you. They're seeing the community of faith. They're seeing the love that you share for one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the fellowship and the sweetness of the communion that you have, you are actually showing your love to one another in greater and greater and greater ways. And then in the face of trials, your steadfast confidence is holding you secure, even in the face of of the opposition that is coming up against you. So, we could ask ourselves some questions if we just wanted to pause there. Is my faith growing? Is my love increasing? Am I standing strong in the storms of life, in the afflictions? And of course, it's easy to just check the box and say, yes, of course, of course I am. But it would be even better to ask some other people what they thought about our life of faith. Because that's really what's happening here uh, in the Thessalonians. Paul is saying, I'm hearing it from others about you. I'm hearing the reports about the Thessalonian faith. In other words, your reputation is getting out and about. And that's a challenging thought. Because we could ask ourselves in that question, what is it that others say about us? What is the reputation that our church, Northview Church, has in the community? If we were just listening, what do people say about Northview? What reputation do Northview people as individuals have in the community? Is it a good thing? Is it a positive thing? Is our faith growing, our love growing, our uh, carrying up under persecutions growing? How do we handle conflict? How do we do troubles? So if someone was grading our performance, what would they say about our lives? Deeper faith, greater love, amazing endurance? How do we navigate afflictions with grace? How do we do conflict well? And it's that concept of living the Christian life under pressure that Paul grabs hold of and he takes a bit of a detour. And it, frankly, it messes up our neat, neat, tidy outline. What we would expect from Paul is his typical greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer. So he should jump to verse 11. And so let's just jump to verse 11. Let's just do it. We're so thankful for you. We boast about you to others and we pray for you. Verse 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings, thanksgiving, prayer. Neat, tidy. Maybe a little boring, predictable, but instead we get this pesky little paragraph in the middle of this opening greeting that takes us down a detour that frankly most of us are not too interested in taking. The thought was introduced back in verse 4. We ourselves boast about you for your steadfastness in faith, and here it is, in all your persecution, and the afflictions you're enduring. Now, I don't know if your mind is like mine, but part of me wants to lean over Paul's shoulder as he's writing and do a little bit of editing. Paul, you could tighten up uh, this thing just a little bit. Uh, Just keep it clean and stay on point. I think you could stop right there with how thankful for you are for their faith, their love, and their steadfast endurance. Like, do you really need that last phrase? Is it necessary in all your persecutions and afflictions? I think we could just cut that. But apparently, Paul thinks it actually is very important uh, because he brings this theme up several times throughout these two letters. If you look back at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. There it is. And with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 4, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. So Paul messes up our neat little outline by inserting this word of consolation into his prayer, specifically about the afflictions that they find themselves facing. So let's go back up to verse 5. the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Slow down and look at a couple phrases. We're going to dig a little bit deeper here. Verse five this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That phrase, this is evidence, is a really challenging phrase because it can be taken in two different ways. Is he looking back to verses three and four and saying, your steadfast hope and faith and trust are evidence that God is making you worthy? Or is he pointing forward saying, let me point you to the evidence of God's coming judgment that all accounts will be made right. And commentators tell us that it could be taken both ways. And so the interpretation, the application to some degree is left up to the reader. So if we read it with the first idea in mind, we might say it like this. The very fact that you are suffering is evidence that you're on the right path. The evidence, the clear sign that your faith is the real McCoy is the fact that it is being opposed. After all, Jesus was opposed and he told us that we would be opposed. Uh, Matthew 10, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They'll deliver you over to courts. Don't be anxious how you speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So why would we be surprised? In fact, in some ways, it's almost like a backward type of rejoice. Because it's evidence that we're on the right track. We must be doing something right if we've attracted the opposition of the enemies. But the second way to read that phrase is that it points forward to the discussion that follows. Here's the clear evidence. Take comfort in this, that God is going to set the record straight. He is just and he will one day repay all of those who have afflicted you. The coming judgment of God is the evidence that this faith that you have in God is the real deal, that those who have afflicted you will be afflicted by God when he's revealed in his glory, and that while our afflictions are temporary and passing, their afflictions will be eternal and enduring. So in other words, to use the words of the Apostles' Creed, he will judge the living and the dead. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me. When uh, when I'm with our live audiences this weekend, I'm going to say, "Stand with me and speak these words out loud." So I'm going to encourage you, though those of you at Central Abbey, those of you at the Mission Campus, and if you want to join us at home, just speak these words out loud with me. So here we go. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to heaven. He descended into hell, sorry. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So it's that phrase right there in the middle about Jesus, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, over the centuries, the church has tried to teach this in many ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, One of the classics was the Heidelberg Catechism, where it unpacks that creed line by line in question form. And they ask this question, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer is this, that in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will call all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Wow, that is a mouthful, but it is also amazingly comforting. Then in other words, I need some assurance that this journey of faith is worth enduring. How do I bear up under persecution? By looking forward, by looking ahead to the coming judgment of God. So, 2 Thessalonians, verse 9 and 10, then says this They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Honestly, it is a sobering text. And frankly, it's a topic that many today either don't want to talk about, or if they do talk about it, they dismiss it entirely. How often have you heard a friend or family member say to you, I don't believe in final judgment? I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't believe that there is anything beyond this life in the present. Or even more strange are those people who say, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. And that somehow everyone who dies goes to a, quote unquote, better place. The humanist manifesto, uh, there's three versions of it, articulates and puts legs to Marxist ideology. It drives atheistic thought. And there's several phrases in that manifesto that are significant. It says this, promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are illusionary and harmful. They say this, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. And then finally, this phrase, we are responsible for what we are and for what we will be. In other words, I'm the master of my own destiny. I answer to no one. There is just one king in the universe and it's me. Thank you very much. Now, understanding the context, uh, understanding rather the coming judgment of God It's critical to our standing standing firm in the faith. And the text gives us this quiet confidence in knowing that God will have the final say. And so we don't have to. Knowing that God will one day set the record straight strengthens us. It gives us the ability to face incredible opposition. And not only to survive affliction, but to actually do so with joy. And even more so, to forgive those who are afflicting us. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, In this way, whenever we've been wronged, we can give into God's hands any desire to harm or pay back the person who has wronged us, knowing that every wrong in the universe will ultimately be paid for. Either it will turn out to have been paid for by Christ when he died on the cross, if the wrongdoer becomes a Christian, or it will be paid for in the final judgment For those who do not trust in Christ for salvation. Now, why is understanding the final judgment so helpful to us? Well, Grudem gives us four implications. The first is this. It satisfies our inner sense and a need for justice. You see, because we know that there will be a day when things are set straight. There will be a judgment. God is fair and just and righteous and He cannot and He will not Let evil go unpunished. Secondly, we can forgive others because we know ultimately that God is the final judge. It gives us freedom to forgive others and to hand them over or to entrust them to God. In other words, we're releasing ourselves. We're releasing ourselves from the heavy burden of being judge and jury and carrying that weight with us. Thirdly, we're motivated to live holy lives, uh, faithfulness and fruitfulness. We want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant, the, the fear of the Lord, the reverence and awe of God and the love of God. Uh, it constrains us. It motivates us. His love is so amazing. How could I not offer my life in service to him? And then finally, number four, it motivates us to evangelism. Because if we know the decision that we make in this life sets the course for our eternal destiny, then we plead with people, we be reconciled unto God, that Paul said in in 2 Corinthians that we are his ambassadors, that we plead with people, be reconciled. In fact, the patience of God is mentioned in 2 Peter 3, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. See, some are saying, where's this coming that you've thought about? Uh, Why doesn't the Lord return quick? He's not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. See, the Lord is holding out because He wants as many as possible to enter into the kingdom. So that's our text. Greeting, thanksgiving, consolation, and a prayer. Now, What's impossible to get away from these two, in these two letters, is this connection between saving faith and affliction. And if only we could edit Paul's letter, we could make it so much better, for sure. Let's get rid of that affliction and suffering stuff. Yes, God is pleased to purify his people. We understand that we hear that, but we just don't like to talk about it. It's most often, however, in our darkest days of trial that we cry out to God. He comforts us in the midst of our afflictions, and then He, in turn, he takes our pain and he pours it out in comfort to others. Listen to this long section in Second Corinthians 1. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. What, what is basically saying is this who's the best person to comfort, to counsel, to empathize, emphasize with someone who is suffering? Another person who has gone through that valley ahead of us. You don't understand cancer until you have had it. You don't understand divorce until it has touched your family. You don't understand death until you stand by the graveside of a spouse or a child or a friend. But God is faithful, and he carries us through our afflictions, and then he turns us back around to comfort others with the very same comfort he's given us. So in other words, God uses our afflictions for our good and for his glory. This is true. But before we close it off, I want to drill down one layer deeper and ask this question. What was it specifically about the Thessalonians and what they believed and lived that brought them these afflictions and persecutions? You see, we could just generically say, well, as we already have said, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, then expect to be opposed. And that's what was happening at Thessalonica. The heat was getting turned up. But there are two phrases back in Acts 17 that I want to go back to and pick up. Acts 17, 6 and 8, these men who have turned the world upside down Have come here, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, that phrase, disturbed when they heard these things. You see, here's the crux of the matter. We love to talk about being children of the king, adopted, sons and daughters of the most high God. I love C.S. Lewis's phrase, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. But do we understand the revolutionary implication of that phrase, Kingdom? Kingdom? It's all over the New Testament. Living for a different Kingdom. Calling us to a different drumbeat. John the Baptist began preaching, Repent, the Kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came preaching. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. The disciples went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And as you read through the New Testament, more often and often, it's connected, the gospel of the kingdom. And in Acts 17, Paul is charged with treason against the state for saying that there was another king. The reply he got was, we have no king but Caesar. And the Christian response was, well, actually, we do. We have a different king. His name Is Jesus and what the macro story of the Bible tells us is that there is just one King that governments will rise and fall and they will be quickly forgotten it's the great story of human history that human rulers are just a blip on the radar and then they become pages of history that the nations are like a drop in the bucket Isaiah 40 says but the Lord reigns big God little me big God little government. He is king. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And the preaching of the kingdom is what gets us in trouble. You see, just adding a little religion, adding a little spirituality to your lives doesn't upset most people. But when we're asked to turn over the keys of our lives and to get off the throne, And to let a new king rule and reign, that's when things get hot. And even more, if we would dare to bring the values of this new kingdom up against the values of the reigning idols of our world, watch out. So as we wrap up the opening verses of chapter 1, I want to ask you that question again. Are you interested in learning to swim upstream? Why that analogy? Why swimming upstream? Well, I think it's a great picture of what Jesus calls us to. And in particular, what we see being lived out in the lives of these first disciples. Back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. As a kid, I heard that analogy, and I had this image in my mind, for whatever reason, that walking the narrow road meant you get off the broad road. It was like the broad road's going this way, and then there's this narrow path, something like the the stairs to Mordor in Lord of the Rings. Gollum, who warns Frodo. You can't take that path. It's not safe. I, I know a better path. I know a secret path to go up these stairs. Get off this main road and take the narrow road, Up the mountain. But the the older I get, the more that that image has changed in my mind that the broad path is like a river or a highway that is flowing away from God. It is always moving, it is never neutral. Sometimes there's white water and storms, and sometimes it's very calm, but it is always moving. And when God calls us to repent or turn around, it's to get off that broad road and onto the narrow. It's like making a U-turn in the middle of the freeway and then heading right back up against the flow of traffic. It's the idea of swimming upstream, going against the flow, constantly dodging and weaving and bumping into people and issues. You see, we don't have the option of escaping the world. Some have tried it. In every generation, we have had the version of our Amish communities, if you will. The Essenes in the New Testament packed up the wagons and they set up their own little communes up on the north shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, The monastery communities of, of the Dark Ages. Even today, we talk about our Christian bubbles, our Christian subcultures. But the fact of the matter is we can never truly escape the world. And in fact, we weren't meant to escape the world. Rather, we are supposed to enter the world and be salt and light to bring preservation and illumination. And so our question, are you prepared to buck the current? Are you prepared to be like that salmon, if you will, that's fighting for its very life and existence as it returns upstream to find the home that it originally came from? What I need to remind you of is that there's actually no neutral in the river that we're swimming in. The flow of the river, the flow of culture is going away from God. And so if you're in neutral, you're drifting, you're drifting away. The culture and the pole and the shift is always away from God. And so if you take your foot off the gas, you will drift backwards. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, you receive the word in much affliction. You know, frankly, I don't know if we know too much about affliction yet in the West. We live in a bit of a strange time in Western culture where our faith has been actually pretty easy. Uh, It's been affirmed for the most part uh, up until now. Uh, Being a Christian, for the most part, was seen as a a good thing, a beneficial thing, or at least a a non-offensive thing. I was struck with this reality uh, this summer. One of my books on our vacation was this book, uh, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, One of the world's foremost atheists who was famous for his book, God is Not Great. A Christian guy named Larry Totten, who debated him often and traveled with him, writes this autobiography. What I was struck with is that this world-famous Mr. Atheist is actually, was actually, before his death, a member of the Church of England. And you're like, how's that? Well, he was baptized by his parents in the Church of England as an infant. And according to baptismal roles, his name is still there. And you go, well, wait a minute, Mr. Atheist, debating man, aren't you officially a member of the church? But Totten says this, rather than a Christian sacramental act, Christopher's baptism seems to have been part of what parents considered a good English upbringing. Thus began his introduction to religion, never committed, seldom deep, always on the margins. You see, truthfully, his baptism didn't matter. It was accepted by the culture, but it didn't mean anything. It was just a private religious ceremony, no impact on how he lived his life. But as the heat of opposition rises, are we prepared to swim against the tide? Are we prepared to count the cost? Uh, It's happened in times and places. I remember as a kid, we lived in the Four Corners area of Colorado where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet, and it's Mormon territory. Uh, particularly over into small-town Utah. And my dad, as a Baptist preacher, was often called into Utah to do funerals for Christian people who didn't have a pastor locally to do them. And in those years, he became friends with a local mortician who happened to be a Mormon, but would do the funerals for Christian people. And over the course of several years, as my dad witnessed to this Mormon mortician, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the details are a bit fuzzy, but all I remember is, as a kid, is that within a year, he was out of business. You see, the majority in that community were of the Mormon faith, and they would not give their funerals to a Christian mortician. He counted the cost of following Jesus. Now, I've often wondered what happened to him. Did he move away? Did he find another job? Did he resettle? Did he keep his faith? Did he persevere? What's my point? My point is this. The Thessalonians' daily life had changed. They didn't just add a little religion. Uh, They turned their whole lives upside down. The fabric of their cities and their culture began to change. They started living as if Jesus was truly their King, and that's when the trouble began. So here's our question as we close. Will Jesus truly be King? Because if He is truly your King, then you... Invite opposition. Why? Because you're an upside downer. Indeed, you are a disturber of the peace. Because you're crying out, you're giving warning, you're giving testimony. The river is headed for a great falls. Rescue yourself before it's too late. Why did the Thessalonians call Paul a Scheisenmeister? Why was he accused of treason against the state? Why the label, disturber of the peace? Because he had the audacity to proclaim Jesus Christ as king. And you see, that's the message that the Bible gives us that is so confrontational. That there is and can be only one king, and his name is Jesus. All other kings and kingdoms will fall. And ultimately, they will bow before the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, most critical, most confrontational is not the national or the political or the macro level, all the nations are like a drop in the bucket, that the Lord is the one who sets up and takes down rulers, that He moves them around like pawns for His purposes. I I think, actually, we like that idea. We like the idea that God is ultimately in control and that those people, they will answer to Him. Most critical most confrontational is when King Jesus asks for the throne of our lives, our own personal fiefdom. And it might be a very small realm, but we are very protective of our own little kingdom. You see, in our day, you're very familiar with this phrase, we live in a day of radical individualism. Radical individualism. Where above all else, we are the kings and queens of our own lives. No one has the right to tell us what to do with our own lives. We alone are sovereign over our lives. We are the masters of our own destiny. We are the captain of our souls. Or to echo Frank Sinatra's theme song, I did it my way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when God calls a person to Himself, He bids them to come and die. Jesus said, if you're going to follow Me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. In other words, be prepared to die. Galatians 1 says, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. If you're in Christ, you're dead. Christ is living His life through you. Romans 12 says, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, we get up on that altar and we offer our lives in sacrifice and service. But the problem with a living sacrifice is that we keep crawling off the altar. And so we need to make this daily commitment to live for the one who died for us. To declare him as king, not only of the universe, but king of our lives. And so in making that declaration, we become part of the resistance. We begin our journey upstream. And inevitably we will bump into those headed in the opposite direction. So let me ask you as we close, are you ready to swim upstream? Let me pray for you. Lord, uh, we look at this story, uh, 2,000 years old, when Paul came into a village called Thessalonica and he lifted up your name as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and what happened in that community as people embraced faith in Jesus Christ that they were accused literally of turning the world upside down. They were accused of being disturbers of the peace. Father, I wonder about our lives. Is there evidence enough in our lives that the world would look at us and say, wow, those people live upside down. Those people really are disturbers of the status quo. So Lord, it's a challenging text. Swimming upstream is not the easiest thing to do. And I pray for the men and women who are listening to this message, not knowing the details of their daily life, but knowing full well if they're doing life in our culture and they're seeking to be faithful to you, that inevitably they are bumping up against the opposition, what you call here, afflictions and persecutions. And so Lord, may you strengthen us. May you point our eyes to Jesus, the one who suffered in our place, the one who was rejected so that we can be accepted, the one who's done everything that we need to have done and that he will strengthen us. So Lord, make us faithful, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.